Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Future Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Juliette Lamar. And joining us today is David J. Gunkel. He is the author of many books, but the two that we're talking about today are Gaming the System and Robot Rights. I'm so excited. Welcome, David, to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's get started with, uh, you know, how did you come to be a writer in this space? You write a lot about technology. So give us a little insight into, into yourself. Yeah, sure. So I have a PhD in philosophy. And when I was finishing my philosophy PhD, which was actually in the work of Hegel, a 19th century German philosopher, uh, it dawned on me that uh, jobs for Hegel scholars were far and few between and that I needed to somehow have a hook for what it is I do that could sort of scale to the changes in uh, culture, society, technology, etc. And I just started at that time um, working on uh, web development, and I had been sort of paying for the bad habit of going to school by developing <laughs> web pages. And so it, at the time I graduated, I realized that there was this opening for thinkers who could address the social, moral, uh, legal questions having to do with this new thing called the Internet, and then after that, robots and uh, AI and all kinds of other things like algorithms um, as our world gets more technologically enmeshed with um, these devices. Well, that's, that's quite a, a jump, I think. <laughs> from, from Did you ever think that you would be writing in so in-depthly about technology? Um, I think probably if you had asked me this during the time that I was finishing my PhD, I would have said no. But uh, shortly after getting out of school, I realized that this really was going to be quite uh, an opportunity um, for individuals like myself and that uh, if I didn't jump on it, somebody else would. So uh, it, it turned out to be rather, uh, rather a good choice. <laughs> this you know, with, with the emergence of technology and in this really exciting yet confusing time that we are in, in our humanity, you know, there's so much to explore. And I think that you, that you do that a lot in your books. Let's talk a little bit about um, gaming the system. So give us a little overview about what it's about and maybe some, some bits and pieces that you'd like to pull from it. Yeah, sure. So gaming the system is sort of an attempt to look at video games and computer games as more than fun and games. I mean, obviously, playing games are fun, and my kid likes playing them, I like playing them, everyone, you know, from the casual games of Fruit Ninja to the more serious games to the more pegs, you name it, you know, everyone has a kind of involvement with gaming in one way, shape, or form. But there's a lot going on in games that really pushes beyond just having fun. Um, games model reality. They model for us our world. They model things like the physical universe. They model things like our relationships uh, to each other, our social structures, our understanding of gender, our understandings of politics. And so gaming is a space in which a lot of deep-seated questions from the past that are rather philosophical, um, rather theoretical, can actually be played with in practice. And so video games become a place in which we can project these ideas um, that go beyond just writing books, right? We can actually enable worlds which play with these various parameters and see what uh, results from that. So the book gets into uh, a number of different things. Uh, for example, it looks at terms of service agreements um, like a political document because 
the terms of service at Facebook and elsewhere are really a political structuring document that creates our political reality. So that I call them uh, social contract 2.0. Um, I look at avatars and the way avatars sort of remediate our understanding of identity and allow us to play with um, all kinds of things related to how we think about ourselves and our relationship to our bodies. And uh, I look at uh, things related to other aspects of gaming, um, like, for example, the fact that a lot of the times that you're in games, you're not even interacting with human beings, right? A lot of the non-player characters are bots. And so there's a kind of rudimentary artificial intelligence uh, that we have to interact with uh, in the games. And that opens up some new social spaces and some new social uh, problems as we engage with these kinds of non-human others in these uh, game spaces. You're bringing up so many so many exciting things that I want to talk about. Um, you know, you bring up the imagination and, and really the freedom in gaming when it comes to, say, picking an avatar. You know, your now your sense of self is really completely imagined by you, and you have this newfound freedom to be, quote unquote, you know, your true self, if if that's kind of how you want to view it, and and then the socialness that comes with that. So, you know, what what kind of things are you seeing as far as I guess development for people who are engaged in these games so deeply, you know, we see it with their more connected to their avatar than not. And then the interactions with the bots that you're talking about, how are these contributing to the social problems that we might see in the outside of the game space? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ways that it relates to some very real world kinds of issues is that when you are engaging in an online interaction with a uh, avatar, you actually do not ever know what is behind that avatar. You know, it could be a person, it could be a computer, it could be a combination thereof. Um, you never get to lift the veil and peek behind the screen to see what is actually there. And you have to take what Sherry Turkle calls the avatar at interface value because it's all that is available to you um, in that space. Now, this seems like a artifact of the technology, but actually, if you think about it, our interactions every day have the same problem. Uh, we call it the other minds problem in the uh, philosophy of, of mind. I mean, how do I know that you are a feeling, thinking thing like I assume I am? Um, I don't, right? All I can do is engage in conversational interaction with you and read from your behaviors various symptoms that I take to be the product of a conscious mind running the show. But when you get right down to it, there's no way to bridge that gap. I can't climb into your head to see things from the inside. So the avatar really opens up a way for us to re-engage these questions having to do with social presence and the other minds problem in brand new ways that aren't just sort of heady philosophical thought experiments, but are actual real world, real engaged social problems that we have to contend with day to day. Absolutely. And it's a space that, that really feels, you know, like you can, you can stretch your ideas in that way, which is great. What are some of the, the biggest positive impacts that you're seeing from gaming? Because I know that a lot of people focus on the negative. And, and although there are some negatives, absolutely, what kind of positive waves are you seeing being created? Yeah, so there's all kinds of things that we've seen um, from actual physical um, experiences down to emotional attachment, things like this. Um, a lot of studies have been done with regards to gaming and socialization. I mean, I think one of the things we hear time and time again is that people are engaging these games and aren't being social, aren't getting out and playing outside and engaging real people in real space. Um, this is an old argument. It goes all the way back to Plato's Phaedrus, in which uh, Socrates argued that writing was going to make people asocial. So I think, you know, we've seen this 
play out again and again with every new technology. It turns out that a lot of the social interaction that goes on online isn't false. It's actual real social interaction. And for some individuals, it is even better social interaction um, as they feel uh, more freed up to be who they are, uh, to express themselves in ways that they may feel um, sort of reticence to do so in physical reality. So I think there's some social uh, opportunities that these games make available. Now, obviously, you have to leverage those in the right way and you have to develop them. But it isn't just an all or nothing kind of situation. It isn't all antisocial or all social. But it's a good mix of this where we have to really figure out how to utilize this opportunity and leverage it for uh, its good outcomes. I think another thing we see is a recognition that identity is very fluid. Um, the avatar allows for us to play with identity in ways that uh, is rather complicated and difficult to do in physical reality. But online, um, you can be who or what you want to be, and as a result of that, uh, get to play out uh, various roles in ways that you may not feel so, uh, you may not have so accessible to you uh, in physical reality. Uh, I think another thing that happens is we get to sort of model our world. So you can, in a sandbox game like uh, Minecraft, actually create an environment and embody that environment and, and live in that environment in ways that you, you know, would have difficulties doing in real physical space. And so it opens up this possibility of building and imagining in ways that, uh, you know, we really encourage with children with playing with Legos or blocks or something. Now you can do it in the, the virtual world of the game and, and you can model and create all kinds of alternative realities that uh, open up possibilities for different forms of interaction, different forms of uh, engagement, different forms of empowerment, um, as the case may be. I love those kind of games that, that you are creating something and building something and having to think around problem solving. Those are those are the ones that I personally enjoy and think have such a such an expanding impact on, on the brain. So positive or negative social impact on, on people who are in the gaming world. Do you think that it is ultimately though having an effect on our empathy levels, like changing our empathy? You know, when you're talking to someone in a video game or chatting online during a game or trash talking, you know, you are putting out either a positive or a negative verbiage to that person, but you're not really seeing the reaction. You're not seeing them, you know, smile or blush or light up and you're not seeing them cry or feel ashamed. Do you think that's changing our empathy connection as humans? I don't know that it's changing it as so much as it is evolving it in ways that are um, different from expectations that we gain from our physical reality. In other words, it's not good or bad. It's just another register in which these things play out. So, for example, when you are engaged with a lot of the online interaction, you lose a lot of the nonverbals unless you're using, like, your avatar um, and has, you know, an avatar that can really be expressive. So you have to remediate a lot of gesture into spoken or typed dialogue. And as a result, it has really uh, transformed some of the ways we think about using words and the way in which um, the verbal functions in interpersonal uh, interaction when the nonverbal is not uh, as readily available. As the technology evolves, you can bet that this is going to change. And as more channels of communication become available, um, we'll find experimentations going on in these uh, facilities that will, I think, again, open up some new possibilities and challenge old ones. But I don't think it's a situation where uh, it's 
you know, something that's being lost and we should cling to the past. I think we should see the way in which uh, what we did in the past is being transformed, remediated, uh, evolved as a result of the interactions with the technology. No, it's very, it's a very forward-thinking way to look at it, um, and I, I agree. And I just really, I, I'm excited for the day when we can add in more of a whole-body experience, so that it, you know, your actions and your words are not simply thrown out into the universe without any idea of how they're impacting the other people. Um, so enough about gaming. Let's scoot on to robot rights because this is a great topic as well. Tell us a little bit about the book Robot Rights and, uh, and give us some snippets of information from that. Sure. So, you know, right now, if you look out into the world that we occupy, we are in the middle of a robot invasion. Now, it doesn't look like a robot invasion that science fiction has predicted for us, where the robots come from outer space with ray guns and they start shooting up all of humanity. <laughs> um, it's not like that. It's more like the fall of Rome, where every day more and more algorithms take over activities that we used to do as human beings. More and more social robots come into our home like Alexa and Siri. More and more of our jobs are spent interacting with machines as opposed to interacting with human beings. And one day we'll wake up and we'll say, where did all the robots come from? Because they're already here and they will just proliferate um, in the next decade. So as these machines take on greater capability, not only in terms of their uh, ability to reason and take action in the world, but also in terms of their social interactivity with us, uh, we've got to ask some important questions. Like one, when would it make sense to say that a action undertaken through an algorithm is the fault of the algorithm? In other words, when would we say it's the computer's mm -hmm. fault? When would responsibility be accorded to the machine and not just the human user? Conversely, when would these socially interactive mechanisms have some kind of social standing? Um, maybe not on par with a human being, but maybe on par with an animal or some other uh, lesser uh, kind of entity. In other words, could or should these entities at some point have any sort of legal or moral standing in our universe? So I think these are the questions that we're going to be looking at in the not-too-distant future. And there's been a lot of writing done on the responsibility question and making AI and robots safe and accountable. There's been very little work done on the side of social standing and uh, the rights or lack thereof for these entities. And so the Robot Rights Book was an attempt to uh, address that difference and say, you know, both these questions matter, but this other question has kind of been left in the margins, and uh, we need to begin to grapple with it if we're going to be able to scale to the challenges of the 21st century. Why do you think it's taken so long for, for people, and still taking a it's time, um, to really give this moral standing to these entities? Um, you know, what is really the holdup? So the holdup, I think, is a very strong commitment to what we can call the instrumental theory of technology. And this is a very old understanding of technology, but it's very operative today still. And that says that technology is a tool or an instrument that is used by human beings, and that if something goes right, it's to the human being's credit. If something goes wrong, it's to the human being's detriment. The machine or the tool means or does nothing by itself. Um, we have a, a good sort of uh, little adage we can say, you know, it's a poor carpenter who blames his tools, right? It's the carpenter, not the <laughs> saw or the hammer that does something. And this has worked for all kinds of technologies, from simple hand tools to lawnmowers to atomic bombs to airliners, you name it. But we are at a point in time now when our technologies are beginning to struggle against this instrumentalist theory and giving us evidence of situations where the robots might be more than just an instrument. So let me give you a good example of where this is happening. 
and why this could be of some interest. Uh, and I'll give you a good I'll give you a good good version and a bad version. Uh, the bad version is Tay, uh, Microsoft foulmouth teenage uh, Twitter bot. Right when Microsoft mm-hmm. put Tay online, um, the intention was for Tay to learn how to speak like a teenager, and the uh, behavior of Tay was to evolve through human interaction. Well, six hours after going online, Tay becomes a raving neo-Nazi racist, and she starts tweeting all this horrific stuff, so much so that Microsoft has to take her offline um, and you know, take the bot down. Now, Microsoft didn't go and set out to program a racist Twitter bot. This is something that the Twitter bot evolved in its interactions through Twitter with other human beings. So when Microsoft was asked to take responsibility for this, they sort of dodged and they said, well, it's not us, it's not the engineers. It's really a combination of people and the technology and us. And so it distributed the responsibility across this network of interacting components where it was really unclear who was responsible for Tay becoming a racist. And mm-hmm. that is a rather new way of you know, diluting responsibility um, and pushing it across a network of both human and non-human components. On the good side, you have... Uh, the AlphaGo event, when AlphaGo from DeepMind beat Lee Sedol from South Korea in the game of Go. When people were reporting on this event, they did not quite know to whom to attribute the win. Was it the engineers at DeepMind? When you asked them, they said, no, we don't even know how to play Go. We just set up the training algorithm and it learned by itself how to play Go. Uh, So was it AlphaGo? And when you look at the reporting on this event, AlphaGo is named the winner. AlphaGo is listed in the Go rankings as the number two or number one player in the world. Um, And so we're attributing a kind of agency to the entity that is AlphaGo when it's just a piece of technology. So this is making that instrumental theory a little more difficult to apply in practice. I mean, theoretically, it should apply. But in practice, we have technologies that seem to be pushing against the explanatory capabilities of the theory. And as a result of this, we're beginning to think outside the box of the instrumentalist theory and say, what other ways can we think about the social and legal position of these entities so that we can make sense of the role they play in our world today? Those were such such great examples, and I think clearly illustrates your point. And you know, this is a really hard question to answer. And and I don't believe we're anywhere close to answering it without more and more examples and and then maybe some sort of not regulation, but someone stepping up and saying, you know, this is how we're going to calculate it. And I don't know if anyone is really willing to do that right now. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is a ongoing conversation. In fact, part of the role of the book is to get all the things out on the table so we can have this conversation and do so in a way that's informed and that will result in some really good uh, decision-making and policy. But you see it happening in different ways across the world. So, for example, uh, because of the differing legal systems, the European Union is doing a lot of work to try to get out in front of this. And that's because their legal system is more top-down statutory, where decisions have to be made before something goes wrong. You see a lot Mm -hmm. less of this conversation going on in the U.S., where we have a common law practice, where we're going to wait for something to go wrong and for someone to sue someone so that the courts can then create a precedent, and out of that precedent, evolve common law that will uh, accommodate itself to these new challenges. So I think you're seeing the conversation happening, but at different scales and at different uh, paces because of the the different legal systems that are involved in the process. You know, I I don't think that it's even going to have to stay 
per country to to solve this problem because these AIs and these robots, you know, they don't belong to a country and I don't think they're going to live by the laws of a specific country. I think it's going to have to be an issue where globally people come together and have an agreement on it from a worldview. Correct. And there is some traction, um, especially in the area right now of robotic uh, weapons. There is an international mm. effort to ban autonomous killing machines um, that I think is a good example of the way that as an international community, this has got to be addressed because at a national level, it doesn't do any good. Uh, if one country has it and the other country doesn't, uh, you don't really get a resolution to the problem. And it does need to be done on an international level because it does, these robots wouldn't know national boundaries, right? Absolutely not. I mean, they only know what we teach them. And uh, when we see what Tay has done, we might need to, <laughs> need to really re put the mirror up to our own human ugliness and, and see, you know, these, these machines are a blank slate and they're taking information from all over. And if that is, is the overwhelming messaging they're getting, we need to kind of pit, take a couple of steps back. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely correct, especially with, with learning algorithms and the way that they extract patterns from big data. Uh, that big data comes from us, but uh, the patterns they find are oftentimes, to us, very surprising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, David, tell us where we can find both these books and your slew of other books. What is the best way to connect, and do you have anything that's up and coming? Sure. So uh, the best way to find out more about me is to go to gunkelweb.com, which is my webpage. Um, the books that we mentioned today are available from MIT Press. That's where the Robot Rights has been published. And then Gaming the System is from Indiana University Press. Um, and you can either go to those uh, websites or to Amazon, obviously, um, where all these things are, are bought and sold these days. Uh, the next thing on the docket for me is that I'm working on an undergraduate textbook in the field of artificial intelligence and communication, uh, mainly because the field of communication has really lagged uh, in dealing with the new challenges that come from AI and robotics and there is a perceived need to get us, that is the field of communication, up to speed. And uh, a textbook for undergraduates is uh, seen as being the proper way to get this started so that we can get uh, curriculum in the university and begin to get students engaged in grappling with these new social questions and opportunities. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today and and share your, your insight into both these industries. Very exciting stuff. I'm especially intrigued by robot rights. I'm going to have to go get that book. Thanks. That was David J. Gunkel. He is the author of The Gaming System, or Gaming the System and Robot Rights. You can find them at Amazon and all his website as well. This has been Juliet Lamar with Future Tech Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.